That old maxim about being the change you want to see in the world may belong to a bygone era, but for Byron Bay-based business, Offends, the consciousness around their brand stands smack bang in the middle of this truth. With co-founders Declan Wise and Jonathan Southfield at the helm, this fashion brand, Offends, continues to evolve, riding the wave of social innovation and social entrepreneurship. In this conversation, we dive into this evolution of this brand and we talk about how the co-founders Declan and Jonathan navigate business together and where they see the evolution is next for the way that consumers interact and care about the brands that they are associated with. They also are at the forefront of the hemp revolution, where our fashion comes from and really understanding everything about the production. We dive into an exciting new project that this brand is about to launch into. Down to earth, insatiably passionate and real to their Byron roots, enjoy this conversation with Declan Wise and Jonathan Southfield. Declan and Jonathan, it's great to be connecting with you. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, good, good, good. It's uh, strange times, isn't it, to be connecting uh, this way? But um, as you said, you're you're down in Byron, and uh, life's been fairly normal, I would say, in the last eighteen months. Yeah, we're pretty good. Yeah, you know, we had lockdown last year, which was a I don't even remember how long it went for, but it must have been six to eight weeks or something and all the car parks are closed and the beaches and that was about all we right. everything was closed though was, everything was closed yeah. and it was the positive was it was kind of like it was back to the 80s or the like early 90s i remember going down to the past there was like no one there yeah it was, it was amazing it was like yeah. really good yeah, yeah, it's a bit of time travel. I um, I actually remember Byron of the eighties. I kind of grew up in Wollongong. We used to go down there quite a bit, and it was this quiet little town, which is not anymore. No, it's so busy. It's crazy. So, really keen to unpack um, the business and yeah. how you arrived at the business. But I'd love to start with where did the name Offends come from? <laughs> we always have a different story for this. How can you tell that? Um, I guess Jono and myself, we both had like little t shirt brands in high school. I, Jono, had a brand called No Vacancy and I had a brand called Athens. Um, which is based off the city. So, yeah, we were pretty good friends from pretty young age, probably from about, I think I was about 12, 13, we started hanging out and lived close to each other. Yeah, and it pretty much we talked about starting a brand through school. It was more of a dream or a facade, you know. We didn't really know what entailed in it. And um, pretty much Jono went overseas for a while and when he came back we committed to it. And then um, I was really into the name Athens. And yeah, we decided just to sort of edit, edit the name a little bit and come up with something cool. So it was pretty much just the evolution, sitting in a room, coming up with names and ideas. And and then we built like a pretty cool culture, I guess. Like if you look back on it. Yeah. So the name's kind of like, you know, you can pick anything for a name for a business or a company or whatever. But, you know, there's a couple other things that we kind of considered, which was like the way the word looked it sounded we we didn't want a generic name out of the dictionary because we wanted to make up something yeah that was sort of yeah and then you can kind of like create your own meaning behind the name so i guess the way it's spelled based off a different interpretation of the the city athens and it kind of sounded cool 
Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Was there any names that were, ended up on the chopping room floor? Any names that you kind of played oh, with? Oh, it was a while ago now. <laughs> <laughs> Stretching the thinking. There's we, so look, we thought it was real cool because I had a screen printing business when John and I went overseas to England for a while and I had a screen printing business. So I was we were printing different names on things and, and so visually it kind of looked good. It, it never came from offending anyone or offend like in that sort of way. I guess we sort of realised afterwards that, it sounded like it. That, sounded yeah. like it. Yeah. Because we used to sort of call it like AFENS at the start. Yeah. And then it sort of just evolved into it. Yeah. You know, yeah. There was a couple of, what about boxed in? That was pretty classic. Yeah. That, you, yeah. You know, that, that was just a, yeah. Nah. Um, there was no other names. That was it. Nah. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Sound like that, that got vetted very quickly in the old boxed yeah. in. <laughs> and did you grow up around Byron? Was that in the area or elsewhere? Yeah. yeah we both went to school here. John I moved here when he was like three from England or something. Yeah, my my mum's from Armidale, my dad's from Derbyshire in England, and basically we were we're over there till I was about two, and then we came over here um, to Byron in yeah 1985. Deco grew up in Nimbin. My oh, my parents met in Nimbin, and then I was born in Byron, but my dad was from Victoria. He moved up. Um, when he was like early twenties, I, I think he was 19, 21 or something like that. But yeah. He, and then mum was from Brisbane sort of area. So she's, her parents are from there, but yeah, they met in Nimbin. So I had like brothers <laughs> and sisters that went to school there. And then we kind of moved over to here pretty early on, probably. Yeah. 30, I think they moved here in 82, something like that. So been in the area a long time, family has. Yeah. We all went to school here. And yeah. Pretty cool school, Byron High. Byron, like, yeah, Byron High was used to. It's good. They so when we went there, they ended up getting rid of the uniform because mm. basically you used to. So if you didn't wear a uniform, you just had to get a uniform pass. I don't know if it was like that when you were in high school, but so basically the problem that Byron High had at the whole school just went to the uniform passing every morning. <laughs> Hack the system. <laughs> yeah. So then they decided to to scrap it. Yeah, and I think taking uniforms out is a great call. Yeah. I mean, there's positive and negative. But it's back in now, isn't it? I don't know. I've seen, yeah, it's kid. Yeah, I don't even know if it is. But I'm not sure. No, it's a good place to grow up. Nice alternative upbringing. Yeah. How has some of that kind of informed where I guess the brand and the business has has grown to like the, the upbringing, the, you know, I guess in a lot of ways Byron is known for, questioning things, pushing boundaries, being that kind of alternative space. Has there been elements of that that have kind of informed what well, the brand has become? Yeah, I mean, the sustainability components um, for us is definitely natural. Like Jono's mum started the community school in Byron, so it gives you an idea of his sort of background. And then my parents, are they met in Nimbin. Um, <laughs> yes, there's a lot of alternative. Like when you... You know where you grow up, who you're around, the environment you're in, um, your parents or your friends. It, it, you know that what that's what molds you into. Yeah, so our life. parents have always had a, a sustainable. Well, whether you call it sustainability or not, whatever. It's it's a, a an alternative, a thinking alternative outlook on the environment and, and not to be wasteful and be happy with what you got and you know that sort of whole whole thing. And I, I guess that was. Yeah. One of the things when we started the brand, 
we were more doing it just because we were so interested in it. It wasn't to, to try and make a whole lot of money out of it because we didn't think we would make any money out of it no. initially. We were too young. And- it was a creative, a, a way to, to, to be creative. I, I did a diploma in multimedia and um, you, you're studying how to design things digitally, whether it be at the time it was a CD-ROM or or basically just graphics in general or, or a bit of animation. And I guess for me personally, the exciting part about fashion brand or, or clothing or making something physical and, and so you're designing something not that lives in the digital realm and just on a screen, it now is a piece of clothing on someone. So I don't know, that's what I kind of got excited about as far as, making it a clothing. So I guess it was like designing it digitally or technical or whatever and yeah. bringing it to life. Well, yeah. something that only lives in a computer so yeah. on a digital screen is completely different to seeing it in the physical. So we had our own screen printing business as well. So we could sort of design something and then go make it. Yeah. You know, which See was what it looked like. Yep. Yeah. And then we lived upstairs. So we, we when we first, like in the first days, we were at Ewingstar, which was on my dad's. He's got a couple of acres out there. He had an old shed out there. So we had a little screen printing place there. It was really hot because it was like a low roof. It had no insulation and stuff. So, so we were living in a house together and we decided to get an industrial unit. And then there was like a mezzanine in the industrial unit. So we built some walls and made some bedrooms. And then we had our screen printing operation downstairs. And we are located next to Electric uh, Eyewear, the sunglass brand. So that was kind of cool. There was probably, you know, 15 or 20 people working there and, and we'd get sort of ask them about things and that kind of helped us get some clarity over how things work within the industry and, and things like that. Was there a point in, because it's one thing to kind of have an idea and as you say, we uh, kind of had the screen printing business, the, the combination of the multimedia and seeing how that kind of come together. Didn't go into it kind of make money straight away. Was there a point where you realised actually there's something behind this brand? Was there a, there a moment or an experience where you kind of went, actually, yeah, there's, there's more to this than just being a, well, for me, an that, idea. So we, to finish kind of that whole startup story, we, we then jumped in this high ace van with a bunch of other groms, like two little groms, which yeah. classic. Yeah. Like groms are a couple of years younger, but that's just the culture. <laughs> um, drove around and actually started getting orders and then seeing that, you know, shit, you can make some money out of this. I think, what, we got 60 grand with the indent orders on that first run. And so I think being able to kind of put together a, a catalogue and show shops and then receive orders back, you know, that first kind of moment, then you're like, oh, well, well it's a, it's a business. It was sort of creating like that almost an operational loop, I guess, because yeah. we had, so Dave, this guy, he used to, he owned a store called Byron Style and it was, looking back on it, it's pretty cool, like streetwear store and there wasn't that many stores around Australia like that. But he, you know, we like grew up, used to skate around town and it was sort of like a skate shop and we'd go in there and talk to him and I remember putting clothes on lay-by in there. And so you sort of had, we had this like relationship and I remember I took some hoodies in there to him and he was like, hey, I can sell these, you know. And he, that, there was no T-shirts, it was just hoodies and he, he sold, sold them all like straight away. He called us back a few days later. He's like, I've sold them all, can you make me some more? 
you know, and and I guess it was that was the first bit we went, hey, well, let's get in the van yeah. and, and go for a drive around and see what we so we traveled from like here to Melbourne and went to every little coastal town there was. And there's a um, few. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty pretty much. Yeah, like we literally just drove to every town, mm-hmm. looked around for a surf shop, threw a catalogue under the door or spoke to the guys. And you know, some guys are like, if you walked in at the right time, they'd give you time and they'd be like, Oh, this is kind of cool. Like that's yeah, it's quite strange. So we probably got 30, <laughs> 30 different orders or something. Again, it was around 60,000 in sales. Yeah, something like, something like that. You know, there'd be stores that ordered $500 worth and then a couple came on and ordered three and a half grand or something. So at this point, we didn't have any money or, or anything to pay for production, but we had a, an account with Gildan and everything was being printed on Gildan blanks. So we'd... Call Gildan, that sent us the stuff, we'd print it, we'd send it to the shops, and then we just call the shops as many times as we could until they paid, and then we'd pay the Gildan account, and then we could order more. Mm. And it was just like that kind Cycle. of loop. Yeah. And then yeah, things just kept evolving. Yeah. Do you have a sense of what your point of difference was even then, like doing that drive and going into surf shops? Um, these are surf shops that have brands, they have hoodies, you've got your billabongs, you've got, you know. So the point of difference that you were offering? Yeah, well, back then, surf was dominant over everything, right? Yes. What, 15 years ago, Billabong, Quicksilver, Rip Curl, they kind of owned all the space within the shops. And then those shops that we were selling to would have like a small area for kind of just different things that your alternative kid in the town, the small town, whatever, might be drawn to. We liked... um like, I don't know if I'm going back far enough, but we thought brands like MCD were cool. Yeah. Which were an SMP, which they probably weren't around much longer at that point. And Vulcan. So Vulcan was considered a yeah. cool brand. I um, mean, it's still on Rip Curl, Quicksilver. Because we were sort of Byron surfers that were really at the right age and in that, I guess we sort of dictated in a sense, like our friends and the age that we were at, whether those brands were cool or not. Because yeah. we're at that top tier of, and I don't know. Yeah, so look, we couldn't offer a surf brand that had the best surfers attached to it. What we could offer is a really small organic kind of operation, which it had a bit of, you know, we had a bunch of friends. That I remember when we first went to Jindabyne, we had heaps of friends staying there for the season, snowboarding and, and stuff. So we're able to kind of go there. We'll, Partying and having fun, and you know, then you hey, kind of stickers. We have yeah. lots of stickers, so we put, stickers was huge. For put, us, yeah. put stickers everywhere. They're not um, great for the environment. No, I guess. But look, <laughs> we didn't really know. We didn't know like, any of that. No, I didn't know. But like, I guess able to have a bit of an entourage to kind of walk. Like we'd walk into this shop with six people, mm. and um, you know, it wasn't very professional. But it, it was kind of like they were kind of a bit tripped out. Like, oh, what's going on here? Yeah, proof in the group. Yeah. yeah, a bit of a group and, you know, kind of young guys that, you know, were just giving it a bit of a go. So we comparing that to, say, Billabong, which you got a professional rep coming in that's showing the range. Full spreadsheets out. Yeah, spreadsheets out, have a diverse range of, you know, board shorts and everything. We, we still at that stage had T-shirts and hats. So I guess our point of difference had to be just being that organic brand that had a bit of culture behind it and something that is completely different to the big, bigger surf brands at the time. 
So that evolution and obviously, I mean, a lot of that is, um, you know, walking the streets, it's it's building those relationships and connections, a bit of that kind of startup phase over the 15 years and I guess the, the shift in the business. When you look back on that, do you have, and this might be a, a funny way of saying it, but almost like a favourite failure or a challenge that you faced over that time that um, – that when you think about it, it was it was that experience that actually gave you uh, either a lesson that you learned along the way, or it helped open up a door that you wouldn't have otherwise. Is there one that comes to mind? I think probably the biggest one, whether it's a failure or not, it's it's always a tricky word to say because I know you, in hindsight you kind of go, well, actually, it was perfect, but a challenge for sure. So. God, I don't even know how long ago. It must be like six years ago or whatever. We decided to close down the US. So basically what happened was we started a distributor um, relationship with a guy in the UK and he was quite successful with it um, and it was doing really well. And about a year in, he said, hey, I know this guy in the US. Um, he's got a big license company, does lots of stuff. He's really interested in the brand. So we went sort of flew over there, met with him, went through the process, went on for about six months. We ended up signing a license deal. Yeah, it was with a company called Made for Good. Um, and so his intentions were obviously really good and everything and he had a good team. And and so he got the brand in front of Urban Outfitters and a bunch of other good US sort of retailers and in California, lots of little cool sort of surf boutiques and streetwear stores and, yeah. and it was really good. What happened was is we ended up getting contacted from him um, about a week before our first container, like containers were going to be delivered and he was going into receivership. <laughs> so, and we were, we were at a point where the company was probably a quarter of the size it is now, but smaller. I, I don't know. I'd have to map it out exactly, but we're a lot smaller and we were relying on this money, you know, to pay the factories because he hadn't paid for it. We'd loaded it on the, for him in good faith and and so basically it got into the US and needed to be paid for he'd gone into receivership so we decided to take the business on ourselves so we went okay so all we got to do is front the money for this which was a fair bit we worked out where to borrow it from um we delivered it in and we got it all we got like a full container load full of inventory delivered to our mate's apartment block over there that was living in Cardiff in was, like in Encinitas probably like 200 bucks more 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 it was it was out it was out it's like control. a hoarder's house all of a sudden it was, it was, it was out of control. 500 boxes wow. all the neighbors are just looking at us like wondering what's going on and you know a lot of americans are quite conservative as as well it seemed that way anyway it was pretty wild and mm. it was really so we sort of, uh, you know luckily we had we were doing a fair bit of business with carmelo as well at the time so I think sort of a third of the, the container was going to Carmeloop. So we managed to kind of get all that out in the same day. Um, but, yeah, his house was – every yeah. single bedroom was like chocked full of – The whole house full of wow. boxes. We tried to sort it out into orders. Yeah. Luckily, Carmeloop, which was like a big online streetwear brand, they had kind of a quarter of it or something. So, But anyway, we ended up well, – like, you know, the route to the story is we took on this US business – but we just weren't big enough for it and sort of what we were doing is we're taking turns flying over trying to manage it we needed investment for it we needed management we were really trying to find someone over there that could sort of put a hot, put cash in and own half the business 
So that, you know, it just sort of makes made sense for us back then for a management thing. And we ended up not really finding anyone and, and we took it on. And, and we've done okay running it, but the, the issues were the time that we were losing on trying to grow the Australian business mm-hmm. and going into this US business. Mm-hmm. Um, we probably got it up to like a little bit over a million US in sales and we decided we were just too sort of hard done by it and we decided to just it was too much pull work and, and pull the pin on it. So we didn't actually lose any money out of it because we managed to kind of wrap up all the inventory and collect yep. all the money and, and so – so that was five years ago. Yeah, but the big lesson that we learned was, you know, put your where where are you going to put your focus that makes the most sense? So, the Australian business at the time, yeah, was basically growing fast. It was growing fast, and, and and to let that fall apart to just help the US, it was just didn't make sense. So to be able to kind of cut something that you've kind of put a lot of time and energy into and you've built it up and you're in another country. And- well, I guess it's it's comes back to like economy of scale. Mm-hmm. You know, the bigger you get, the, you've got better economy of scale. And focusing on sales, like, you know, if we look at Australia, we've got, got different states. So rather than probably focusing on sales per, per state at that time, trying to grow sales and grow categories within each state, you know, we decided to take on this big US business and and pull us out of that without having the, the right operational structure. But it was the best thing we ever, the best call we've ever made because then the focus went straight back to Australia. Yeah. Australia started just dominating well, and we we made like our first year of substantial profit probably the year that we cut, yep. off, cut off all those loose ends. Mm. So um, the value of having uh, that really pinpoint focus Knowing yeah, just cut them. all the fat out of it. And, yep. and if we didn't do that at that point because that would have been sort of 10 years, we're 15 years in now. Um, I mean, the first five years was just a, a very organic learning sort of stage and then the next five years was, yeah, it was hard work managing that growth and the cash flow and not making any money out of the business. And then once everything was cut off, we've been in a good position since we've done that really and, and now we're starting to take all that stuff back on again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this might be a useful one to come back to, but what yeah. what I'm interested in is how do you how do the two of you and you might have other people involved, but kind of make those decisions or help to kind of keep clear focus. So so what I can hear is there's a strength in a friendship and a connection. You know each other. You've you've got strengths in different areas, and and no doubt have a way of kind of coming together in terms of making those key decisions for the brand for the business sometimes it can be there's opportunities left right and center and it's it's important to know what to say no to as much as much as it is to know what to say yes to how do the two of you work together around those decisions or conversations um i mean it's you're just trying to get the big decisions correct i guess i I think that's a way that we navigate through a fair bit um that's always been my job i guess yeah jono's got a lot more ideas than I do. So you, you always can take on, like you said, what do you say no to? What do you say yes to? Mm. Because you get opportunities thrown at your left, right and centre. And so I think where Deco really excels is, is kind of pulling me into line and go, hey, no, say no to that. That's going to well, kind of confuse this and this is the actual big picture, big thing that we've got to focus on, whatever that might be. And just getting involved, I guess, when when I guess like the position that we're in at the moment is we've got, like a, a pretty good senior management team and then we've got other management that sits underneath senior management. And it's about interfering with 
that management team when it's necessary to mm-hmm. to know when those decisions are, are going to be because to to kind of people we all need to learn no one's yeah you know, I don't know it's, it's a hard thing so you you go through a company for many many years for us it's been fifteen. And you evolve to a stage where you're hiring all these really expert people that know their field of work really well, better than yeah. you will. If you're hiring people that um, aren't as good as you, then you're probably doing something wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So like Deco was saying, it's about how do you not interfere with them? Yeah, <laughs> let them do what you've hired them to do. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's a pretty hard kind of thing to navigate around because you're like, oh, I've been doing that for ages, but you know what? This person's way better than me, so you kind of do that. But the, the sort of relationship between Jono and I, I guess yeah. I've, he's what's been really cool in our relationship is Jono's always said to me that he wants me to make those decisions. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's it's been quite clear there. And my probably biggest strength is in the whole my whole role is that it's really hard to make tough decisions, right? Whether it be about a staff member, whether it be about a new opportunity you're taking on. And I think where Deco really excels is kind of just making that decision. Sometimes you've made tough decisions probably too quickly and you might have regretted it. But but out of, you know, 20 decisions, you know, if you, if you make most of them right, then we react pretty quickly. Um, Like I, We'll be pretty firm on something, put it pushed in, and then a week later, just go, "Hey, that that's not working. Like what you said was right. Like let's yeah. get back to that Come straight back to away as soon, as soon as we can, you know." And then we flip it back, and then maybe <laughs> we flip it back. Again. Yeah, who knows? You know, it's just about sort of yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you you need to move to then realize what's working or not. Like it's kind of that action, getting to action, do something, yeah. and then I think it's just about trying paint clarity on what's going on because the more people that are involved in it the grayer it gets as well so it's really just trying to break down the situation write down the situation have a good think about it and then act on on what needs to happen the brand has a really strong focus on sustainability and you've talked a little bit about where some of that has kind of come from also on the hemp revolution. So I'm interested in what that is and also what have you learned about sustainability and what do you continue what do you think is the next frontier uh, when it comes to kind of clothing and sustainability? Uh, yeah, what is the next frontier? So for us the journey actually begun at hemp because I guess hemp to us, it had that draw card of something very interesting and a fibre that was totally underused and still is completely underused within the fashion industry. It's, uh, it's a fibre that, that we've researched into quite deeply and I guess what we found so far is that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a necessary fibre for the fashion industry for the sustainability through many different aspects from water saving to... But also, like, it, for us, I guess, by working with hemp, it, was, it just felt like it's kind of yeah. interesting and cool, right? So it's sort of... It has that sort of stoner stigma with it and a little bit, you it know... Did. Yeah, you know, so it's just sort of interesting. And us being, like, when we first started working with it, we were early 30s, um, late 20s or whatever. Yeah. So I guess you could, you know, that long ago, which was probably 10 years ago, it wasn't, sustainability wasn't, it's not, it's a lot different now. It's hardly talked about. It's hardly yeah. talked about. Yep. It's, 
probably looked more about just picking up rubbish and, you know, fumes out of your car about the environment and just all, you know, all those sort of major things. So it was our way to kind of grab a bit of that and talk to our customers about it and our friends and people that, you know, like, hey, check this product out. This is really cool. And did you know you can actually just make clothes out of weed, <laughs> you know, the same weed that you can smoke and, and everything else? Yeah. So, so it connects in pretty good. It, it yeah. connected really well with culture. But then mm-hmm. so you've got, you know, a culture of young people, whether they're in the 20s and at the time, and I think it's changing a lot now, but like to, to make people care about sustainability and, you know, purchasing something that was made better for the environment, you know, what, what were those touching points? And for us, we felt like we could talk to our customer and because we were interested in it about hemp. And we felt like introduce hemp and it's going to be something that people will be interested in. And then guess what? It's also good for you and the planet. <laughs> so I guess, I guess from that point we went into, and we got addicted to it, I guess, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like we sort of, <laughs> the clothing. <laughs> yeah. It sort of, it opened up this thing where like everyone you talk to about hemp is like fascinated on it and anyone already working in it. So it's like this, culture of, of, and family that everyone wants to help each other mm-hmm. and and then we really got into sustainability and we organic cotton and recycled products like lots of our ranges made out of recycled products so not just recycled polyester recycled cotton mm-hmm. which is pre-consumer waste so offcuts from t-shirts that we're already making mm-hmm. etc we would then turn that into a t-shirt as well yep. so it's sort of like 30 percent of our range is, is made of that now as yeah. Well. So what what hemp does really well is it blends with other fabric fibers. So you can imagine how much waste there would be in those factories, say to say in China, a big big factory cutting all these different patterns out, and then all the offcuts from those big bits of fabric. Where does that go? So that's what we're turning yeah. into product recycled cotton program yeah. previously that just goes to landfill so using that but then blending that with hemp as well is pretty sick yeah yeah it's cool and but you've it, got a new project with a farm coming up yeah yeah look there's there's so many different i guess for me the, the exciting thing about doing this we started the brand kind of in a situation which was it was in ewingsdale which wasn't as rural as what we've just bought but being able to work in a place where you're not in an industrial area or in a city, you're actually semi in nature, you know, you've got birds outside. It's just the vibe of being in a place where you've got more nature around you than concrete. Um, so kind of going back to that original roots and then now coming all the way to where we are now on the journey and being able to be able to buy a bit of land that we can then utilise as a creative space, we can experiment in growing hemp and having a look at what that whole process from seed to skin kind of looks like and actually seeing firsthand how sustainable a plant like hemp can be and seeing, you know, if all the facts that you research and Google or online are actually you know, relevant or actually stand up. So the two the two major projects we've got on at the farm at the moment. The first one is a clubhouse. So there's a it's an old golf course. So there's a big old clubhouse out there. It looks like an, an old 
like Swedish sh- chalet or something like an old, yeah, right. you know, Terry, like, terracotta roof. Yeah. And so right. we're, we're turning that into a big creative space, like yep. a big creative sort of studio. And so then we can go out there and we can work on projects and like, we'd usually do this podcast there today, but we've got um, some things going on out there. And then the second thing is growing hemp. So we're going to grow a hectare of hemp. Everything will go in start of October and then we'll harvest it late January, probably February, depending on the season. And then our idea, as long as we can still get our hands on it, is as a, a machine called a decorticator. So what it'll do, it'll split the fibre from the core and then the fibre. So we'll split that, process it. The fibre will go to China. So we're actually going to just send this first batch over to China so they can test and they can, because they've got the industry there, um, we'll send it to a factory and they can make some teas out of it, test the quality of the hemp. And they're looking to purchase as much hemp fibre as they can get. So they'll give us a price based on that fibre and then we can create a local kind of structure for farmers so they know how much they can get a ton and we can work with those guys to try and yeah get them exporting some hemp that's what's super exciting for me for us so having more of that fiber in the industry in the clothing industry australia's not growing any fiber for clothing not one bit um all the cotton that we grow goes offshore and you know there is some australian made teas that you can buy but we can't work out there's no um, industry in Australia that can make the fabric. So the cotton has got to be going to China, getting made in China and then sent back anyway. So we definitely should be creating a local hemp industry. Well, it's, it's easier to grow. Yeah. It's way less toxic. It uses way less water. Um, Is so there higher regulations because of the... Not really. The regulations are easy. Like we've been dealing with like the approval on our farm and... They're great. They're so supportive of it. It gets really difficult when you go into growing THC. Like, so we don't have THC in our crops. So they're just less worried about it because there's no. Yeah. Look, if you're doing everything by the books and following what they want, how you want us to grow the the farm, grow the crop, sorry, from like putting a fence around it, making sure. It's easy. It's easy easy stuff. It's not, it's not hard to do it all. But you've got to jump through a few hoops. You've got to get a license yeah. and you've got to do the right thing. And I think, you know, that's kind of pretty good because, you know, you, <laughs> I don't know. So the farm's really exciting for us. It's, it's great, like yeah. Studio space we can go to and work creatively and, and not be in the hustle and bustle. And we can take yeah. different teams out there on different days, work on either marketing strategies or design strategies or it's it's amazing. And then... We can hold events there, so we can we talking to a couple of um, different companies that do some pretty cool events, and you know we could host them there. They could see hemp being grown. You could eventually one day we might be able to camp out there, or maybe you could camp out there now. <laughs> so it's part of the edu- educational kind of thing of okay. sustainability in hemp, yep. and so that's that whole thing. Yeah, it's. It's, it's great. It's the funnest thing for us going on yeah. right now. It's great. <laughs> Aside from um, sometimes it can be that location, it sounds like you're creating it as well, but one of the key things of being kind of business founders and, and continuing to have that energy is to continue to focus on your own creativity and get excited about stuff. I guess this is a question for both of you because it might be different, but what is? do you have any non-negotiables or what are those things that actually help you to keep 
energized, feeling kind of creative because otherwise you can just get caught in the to-do list of stuff that needs to be done. Do you have non-negotiables that, that help you to come back on track? Yeah, I think, like you said, you, you do something for a long period of time, you keep doing things the same way, you're going to get kind of bored. So sustainability has been a really good uh, turning point for us because there's a lot of new learning, you're trying to work out, you know, especially certifications. So you've got certifications attached to sustainability. So when you say non-negotiables, I think the non-negotiable is, is evolution and looking at how to do things better and constantly innovating um, looking at ways on making things better. There's other non-negotiables we've got where it might be like, how, how do you keep balancing your life from surfing? Or for us now having this farm, we, we're spending every Thursday out there so you can go out there on Thursdays. It's, it's helped with our balance yeah. for sure. Yep. That's Because it's a tricky thing for people. You can get, especially entrepreneurs, you get obsessed, right? Mm-hmm. They'll be working all day and then what do they do when they get home at night they're probably checking more emails and then they're working something else and they just work 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 it's it's obviously an addiction probably to them so how do you create that balance and i think this farm for sure is something that can help that with me anyway yep. and deco sure yeah anything and for I you Declan? we've always been part of the, the relationship between john and i as we move you know, John, I will sort of come up with something and I'll be like, oh, fuck, not another idea. Like, we're trying to sort this out. And then I sort of come in the next day and I'm like, like, there's something in that. Like, yep. let's let's go look at it. And then and then all of a sudden the next day we've got a farm, mm-hmm. you know. And then so the whole thing's moving really quick. Like, I started going yeah. to John last week about carbon and just what's going to happen with carbon in the future and I don't want to um, spill the beans on that one yet. But, um, <laughs> There's something to come. Yeah. 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 Come. So I'm sort of like just sort of thinking, oh, shit, we got to slow down. Like, we got to get this farm thing sorted out mm. first and then we can get on yeah. this carbon. But, it, but I guess even buying the farm. So we went, we saw this block, which we thought we we're going to get really cheap. It was like we thought it would go for three to 400 grand. And so we went to the auction. We're really keen to get it. We think no one else is going to bid because, I don't know, that's just what we thought. There was things wrong with it and you yeah. had to spend money on it and it was sort of perfect to put like a, a warehouse on and we thought we are at the point where we wanted to grow hemp. Yeah. But we just didn't think we'd be able to do it. Pull it off, I guess. Yeah. Now that we've done it, we know it's really easy. Yeah. And it was pretty funny. Deco was actually doing the bidding and it just kept going up and up and it was just this thing where I think we're going to – we were like so sure that we're going to buy this this block, and then it just went up and eventually sold for way way more. And then the property that we bought just we somehow were just looking looking, and it was just sitting there, and we're just like, <clears throat> it was really like, weird because we were searching for properties and we didn't come across it. Yeah. And then we went to this auction, missed out on it, and we were, I was in a really bad mood. Like I was driving back from this. Oh, we should have bought. I should have gone high. I was like. We <laughs> like what are we around with and stuff like yeah and then like in the car on the way back john just brings up this thing on his phone he's like have you seen this yeah (laughs) i was like that's perfect and then the next day we went there looked at it called the agent and then we had like a deposit on it yeah a few days later so just sort of just interesting how it's yeah like when we look back, if we had got that other place, it would have been such a mistake. It would have been a big mistake. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Anyway. It's so riding that roller coaster, isn't it? It's uh, up and down. And as you say, it's the entrepreneurs always kind of thinking, doing, but also the surrender in amongst it all. 
a bit yeah. to kind of see yeah. what comes up. Lot to it. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of you've talked a little bit about excite what's exciting you about kind of what's what's next. How are you going to um and we'll use the word balance because we've talked about, it, but how are you going to balance that in the next couple of months with the, you know, setting that up and, and getting that kind of energy and excitement, which is great, uh, and counter that with with also uh, yeah, I guess having some time away from that. I mean, it all comes down to people you, that's involved in the company and you're around and, and how, I guess, you can step out into different projects and take away focus from something that you might have previously been focusing on and um, having trust in people and letting them kind of, you know. Yeah, we've been, we've been lucky to put together a really good team here and, and it's getting to the point now where we can actually step away a little bit and it's not like we're not, yeah, I don't know, we can go to the farm and we can work on other things. And it's a really good thing because it's priming the business up for us not being here. It's the first step, yep. I guess, is yep. of us not being here so regularly. And, and it's giving that other management the opportunity to kind of grow in their role. And, you know, the, the thing like we spoke about earlier about within the US, we know that we're at the right point now, like when travel opens back up, you know, I would be able to go over there for six weeks even. Things aren't going to fall apart back here. So um, I guess that's part of the balance. Yeah, I think that's what's part of the balance. But what else is, I guess, exciting is that you can create a company and you can put some really brilliant people in it. And then you can kind of set some rules about how it can be a leader in doing things the right way and being sustainable and um, having a really positive impact on the world. And so say every single company was set up in that way, mm-hmm. imagine the world. The impact. Like. So if we can kind of do it in our own company and, and set up something that's ran in a way which can as best can be sustainable because sustainable is a hard word to throw around because you are still making things, but you're trying to make things with a least impact and can have a positive reaction on the world. And as you say, set the example for other businesses, other teams to be having these conversations. Yeah, I guess if we can influence and you've got bigger companies out there that look at that and go, well, this is what's coming through, and then they make the big change and they start using fibres that are more more sustainable on the planet and just different, and there's more regulations and um, not regulations in a bad way, but regulations and certifications that make companies and People, companies that make products, make them in a way that won't impact the earth in too bad a way. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Well, <laughs> part, look, with the certifications that we've got, there's guidelines yep. around environment, you know, whether it being washing or the fabric that we're using. And so, I mean, that's where we get into the accountability part of sustainability. Lifting all ships, we kind of yeah. yeah I mean, and, and it's just a level of expectation, I guess. Yeah, because um, based on what the directors of the company want to create for them, their own business. But it's exciting. The whole industry, so the fashion industry, it's one of the most polluting industries, right? The exciting thing is that can it be the the industry that changes first um, and, and evolves into something that previously was so so polluting. And now it's leading and being the least. I don't know. Can it be? Mm. And these are the questions, right? <laughs> these are 
both forward with yeah. yeah move in the right direction yeah well i guarantee everyone's going to have an electric car within the next 20 years right my yeah. kids uh do do um my son's 13 so i want driverless cars in about three years is what i'm banking on oh, <laughs> so i don't want to have to teach him how to drive <laughs> yeah. and, and i guess the the stress about knowing that your kids on the road and people yeah. getting in cars with yeah. other kids and yeah it's all anyway well, I'll do what I can. <laughs> yeah, I'm lucky my kids are only three and ten months, so I think by the time they're Yeah, you should be right. <laughs> I'll probably activate it on the phone and go, all right, home. <laughs> yep, yep, know exactly where they are. No yeah. turning, no turning left. But it yeah. is, it's sitting in these big questions and, and acting in those that, um, you know, it's been obviously a big part of the brand, where it's come from and also where it's going to I've really appreciated this time. I've got one last question for you both. Uh, the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Declan, I'll go to you. Go to you first. Standout life. Do be happy. <laughs> Pretty much. Like don't, yeah, I don't know. Just, yeah. Sounds good. Just, Jonathan. What does it mean to stand out? Because you, you, you can stand out in a good way or in a bad way. Mm. So. How you stand out's really important. So whatever you've got to realize, and, and for me, having kids, and you know, you say a new word, they copy it. So what you do is very influential to what other people are seeing and, and reacting to. So if we're sitting in a position where we've got a company which employs how many people, say sixty people. And then you've got all these other companies which are looking at it because you might be inspirational as you're doing things differently. That's a standout life. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, guys. It's been great to connect with you both. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments and pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life. Life.